0: Welcome to Global Minnesota podcast, connecting, informing and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit GlobalMinnesota.org.
1: I want to welcome back all of you who've been part of our World Food Day program so far this morning and a warm welcome to all who are just joining for our next session, which will start at 11 o'clock Central Time promptly. I wanted to draw your attention to one of the things that uh, you probably saw when you were registering or joining. Um, We are really pleased to be able to bring this program uh, to everybody around the world free of charge. But we also made a suggestion that if you can, um, world food needs are tremendous, but also hunger at a local level everywhere is a serious problem. We've been hearing about that. And there's opportunities to click and make a donation, if you can, to the World Food Program on a, for Global. Uh, Second Harvest Heartland is one of the local uh, kind of backbones for all of our uh, different kind of food banks and other food programs, or just to somebody locally. We just want to make that a possibility for those of you who are enjoying this program today. We're able to bring this to you of charge because of our very generous uh, partners, our program partners, uh, the World Affairs Council of America uh, uh, in their partnership with the World Food Program USA, and uh, our um, sponsors who've made today's specific program really possible um, Hormel Foods and King Solution, uh, McKnight Foundation, the Regenerative Agriculture Foundation, Blue Cross Food Shield, Greater MSP, but of course all of our members those of you who support us every year with your membership contributions you make this and all the other things we do throughout the year possible and if you're watching today and you want to be part of our global minnesota family um please take a moment down in the youtube channel there's a little box at the bottom uh, uh, description it'll give you a link that can take you to uh a website where you can get additional information, find out about membership, uh, but also just to uh, see the kinds of programming that we're able to do. I mentioned that we've uh, partnered with the government of Belgium to bring a big exhibit, which is now on display at the Mall of America up on the third floor if you happen to be there in the North Atrium by the food court. It's letters from the children of Belgium to the children of America thanking them for saving their lives during the First World War and right after with the food relief that came from our region, from our flour mills, from our farmers. And that kind of program where we did a big opening and we brought in speakers from Belgium and from the United States and from the families and all the people involved, including direct descendants of James Ford Bell, who was the founder of General Mills, that's available. Uh, uh, in our archive, uh, on the YouTube archive. I think it's being edited and it'll go up, but we, you can see the range of programs uh, by going and checking out both the website, but also the YouTube channel. And so today we were very, very uh, excited to bring into uh, this program <laughs> the Director General of the United Nations International Labor Organization, which in fact is the oldest of the specialized uh, parts of the UN system. It grew out of that First World War where there was so much famine and hunger and just uh, such horrific violence and so much maiming and uh, just, uh, just human tragedy throughout um, Europe and other parts of the, the con- of countries around the world and the um, international labor organization was born in 1919 in the wake of that destructive war because there was a vision that we had to do something we had to address some underlying conditions human rights violations and uh oppression and we had to do that in a multilateral or in a global way and so the international labor organization was born um, and it was unusual because it created a tri- what they call a tripartite. You'll hear more about this, um, about uh, uh, where labor and workers and businesses and companies together with governments began to say, we have to find new ways. We have to promote human rights. We have to promote decent employment. We have to promote the protection of people's lives at work in the community. And so I was very thrilled to be able to invite and uh, very grateful for his agreement. The uh, Director General of the International Labor Organization, who's joining us this morning, this morning in Minnesota, from uh, Geneva, their headquarters, Guy Ryder is the Director General. Uh, He will actually be joined also by um, partners from the labor movement and from the Council, the U.S. Council of International Business. Um, And Kevin Cassidy, who's the director of that International Labor Organization office in the United States, and he's the representative to the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF, World Bank, etc., and other multilateral organizations. Guy Ryder joined the International Labor Organization in 1998 as a director of the Bureau of Workers' Activities and was that bureau's director general. And during that time, he really worked heavily on the Decent Work Agenda and launched a lot of uh, initiatives in the global community. But it brought him back there in 2010 to become the executive director in charge of labor standards. And then in 2012, he was elected to be the director general and reelected 2016. He's uh, someone that has incredible international support, support, leading one of the most important agencies. (laughs) Uh, and institutions that we have. I'm so thrilled to welcome and greet Guy Ryder, handing the microphone over to you.
2: Thank you very much uh, indeed. I hope you can uh, hear and see me. Um, It's a a real pleasure to be taking part uh, in this event and I want to thank Global Minnesota for bringing us all together. Uh, Let me say firstly that opportunities to um, link up international organizations such as ours uh, with uh, local state actors are all too rare, and I think we need to take advantage of all of them, and what better opportunity than on this, the uh, 75th anniversary of, of World Food Day. It gives us a terrific opportunity, and this of course coming just after our colleagues at the World Food Programme got the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, I know we'll all want to, to join together in uh, congratulating David Beasley and his team uh, for that wonderful recognition. I'm really pleased, let me say at a personal level, I'm delighted uh, to have the opportunity to interact with friends from, from Minnesota. You remind me of my one and I'm afraid only visit uh, to Minnesota. It was Quite a long time ago I have to say, uh, I went up to uh, visit the Iron Range to, to see working issues on, on the Iron Range up there in the north of your state. Uh, it was a memorable visit, I learned a lot. Uh, I also learned that it gets extremely cold in Duluth in December and the memories of that uh, the climatic conditions uh, have remained with me. Anyway, great to be with you. Let me just say a few words about the International Labour Organization. I don't wanna miss the opportunity to make us better known to all of you over there. As was said by Mr. Ritchie in the introduction, uh, we're 100 years old, uh, last year actually. Uh, We predate any other part of the international uh, system. We predate the United Nations, but we have subsequently become a specialized agency of the United Nations. Uh, And the basic idea of the International Labour Organization, and you'll, you'll get the clue really from the fact that we were set up immediately after the First World War with Woodrow Wilson playing a key role. The basic idea is to avoid conflict, to preserve peace. You need to promote social justice. And to that end, you need to look after people at work. You need to ensure that people have decent working conditions and are able to make a decent living uh, from it and we've got this uh, incredible I think peculiarity of the international labor Organization and you'll you'll see it in action after I finish my my few comments uh, we bring together not just the governments of the world we bring together the employers organizations the business community on one side of the table and labor and trade unions on the other and they're not just invited to the organization they are members they have a full Uh, role in decision-making in our organization. And that makes our organization a really interesting, sometimes difficult place to be, but it's very seldom boring, let me say that. And one of the things, and I'm gonna finish with this on the uh, ILO, one of the things that the ILO does and probably we're best known for, is we negotiate together every year uh, on a global tripartite basis, these three groups together, international labor standards, conventions and recommendations, which are effectively the international rules of the game when it comes to labor matters. Uh, And when those conventions are voluntarily ratified by our member states, they become binding in law. And that's an important point to make. I have to say the United States is not the most enthusiastic uh, ratifier of our conventions, but we hope we can encourage you Uh, to greater efforts in that regard. Now, let me turn uh, my attention to food issues. You you might at first sight say, well, you know, food's really important, it's World Food Day, but what has the ILO and this gentleman from the ILO really got to tell us about food? Well, I think we have to just take a moment to consider just how intimately connected food, food security, the right to food, which is recognized at the international level, how intimately all of that is linked to the work that we do uh, and what we get from that work. Now, let me just um, remind everybody that despite the recognition of the right to food in international law, uh, we are in a situation in the world today, and I'm speaking of before COVID-19 took hold, of 690 million people who suffer from chronic hunger, 2 billion people who have hidden malnutrition. And I think the first question all of us should be asking ourselves, you know, wherever we live is how is this possible? How is it possible in a world where we do have the capacity, notwithstanding planetary limits, notwithstanding the pressures of population growth, we have the capacity uh, to feed and ensure the proper nutrition of every person on this planet. It just doesn't happen. Why? Well, obviously, and this is a natural thing for us to do, isn't it? We point to situations of natural or man-made disaster, be it famine, be it war and conflict, and say, well, you know, this is where hunger comes from. And of course, it does come from such situations, people in extreme vulnerability. Uh, and you know, we think of the Yemen, for example, where we see, frankly, hunger being used as a weapon of conflict and war. Uh, and we know that we have an extraordinary humanitarian and peace-building job uh, to put those situations to an end. And you know, our task, painful as it would be, would be that much easier if the existence of hunger and malnutrition in the world was attributable only to these situations of natural and human disaster. But you know, that isn't the case. There are structural issues, and I suspect others have spoken to you in similar terms as I'm about to do. There are situations, structural problems in our food production and distribution systems uh, which make hunger an unfortunate, unwanted, but widespread byproduct of the way we handle food in the world. The point I think I want to make is that it's not simply about stocks and existence of food, it's about how it is distributed, and it is how people have or do not have access uh, to food. And what I want to say to you is that is intimately linked to the way people work and what they get for the work that they do. Now it seems to me uh, as we head to the next World Food Summit uh, that to put together a a genuinely effective strategy to counter hunger and malnutrition in the world, we have to bring together a whole range of policy issues and a whole range of actors. Foremost amongst those actors are the business community and organised labour side by side with government. We have to bring the science of food production to play, agronomy and everything that goes with it. We have to bring those who are concerned with land holding, land tenancy, land use. Uh, We have to bring trade policy issues into play. We know that the current uh, arrangements for trade policy, agricultural subsidies and the rest of it. Is vitally important as well. And we have to think how global supply chains in the food industry operate. Food starts with that point of production, agricultural laborers in the fields, it goes through to the processing process and it goes right up to those retail workers who are at the point of sale. These are complex processes and they are processes which bring unexpected and sometimes entirely illogical results. Side by side, and I'm sure this has been mentioned before with hunger and malnutrition, we have the problems of obesity, don't we? You know, And there is something strange about a problem of obesity, which is by and large associated uh, with uh, the rich in poor countries and the poorest in rich countries. And we have to unravel those realities and think what we must do about them. But let me focus... Um, a little bit now uh, on the situation of people uh, who work in the food chain and of course their numbers vary greatly uh, according to the economies in which they work. Uh, My figures are that in the United States those in food and food processing uh, amount to about 11% of the workforce, go to sub-Saharan Africa, go to South Asia, and you're 60% plus as the figure uh, that applies. Now, what are the problems? What are the issues that they face? Well, a large proportion of those whose job it is to produce food, the growers, the laborers, the people whose job it is to produce food very often can't afford and can't have access to enough food to keep them healthy. And so we have to start our thinking with the circumstances of agricultural and rural workers in the world. Very large numbers of them work in informal settings. The global uh, figure is that 60% of workers worldwide work in informality, and they are highly concentrated in the agricultural and rural economy. Regrettably, child labor, There are still 152 million child workers in the world heavily concentrated in agriculture. Forced labor, still 25 million forced laborers in the world, a lot of them involved in food production. These are the issues that I think lie uh, at the sometimes hidden end of food production and which we all need to address. But then you have to look at situations of um, rural uh, economies in national economies. We have to work out the ways to make domestic supply chains work better. We have to do things to make working in the rural economy not second best as it is perceived as being in so many countries. That's why you get uh, the very high levels of rural to urban migration that we see in the developing world. We need to make working in the rural economy a really viable and attractive proposition, particularly for young people. That is rarely the case today. Then we have to look at basic issues of safety and health in the rural economy. You know, Hazards in the agricultural uh, uh, sector vary from familiar issues of musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal um, problems Exposure to harmful chemicals, heat stroke, but they also include snake bites and issues such as that. So an enormous range of issues that we have to to look at. And I think my last point in this regard uh, is that in very many of our member states, agricultural workers, rural workers are treated differently from other workers under the law, labor law of the land. Now the ILO doesn't think that there is any justification for making a particular distinction, uh, particularly in respect of the exercise of basic rights. Agricultural workers have the same rights as everybody else, but that uh, is not always acted out uh, in in practice. So these are some of the issues I think that we need to address as we um, tackle the wider issues of food security on this World Food Day. And let me finish, and I I will not go further, by just making a couple of remarks about how COVID-19 has impacted what is an already pretty difficult situation in respect of food and work connected with food. We have seen uh, that COVID-19 has devastated the world of work by our calculations. Covid-19 has led to the destruction of jobs, to the equivalent of 495 million full-time jobs around the world. That is a volume of work which has ceased to take place as a direct result of Covid-19 and uh, its economic and social consequences. That means that labor income has gone down by about 10.5% worldwide. And people at the bottom of the labor market uh, stack, as it were, are those who have to have to spend a very high proportion of their income on eating, on food, and now they're often not able to do that. Informal workers with no social protection often face the choice of going out to work in defiance of medical uh, uh, protocols uh, or not eating and their families don't eat uh, that evening and it's why David Beasley, and I'll finish with him, uh, the leader of the World Food Programme has warned us already that this global health emergency, which has already provoked a dramatic economic and social world of work crisis, runs the risk uh, that the next pandemic is going to be a pandemic of hunger. And none of this is gonna be solved. None of this is gonna be addressed satisfactorily, unless we all pull together as a global community. We are faced with a global emergency. It is an illusion, I am afraid, ladies and gentlemen, to believe that any actor nationally, any actor uh, in terms of where we stand in the world of work is going to be able uh, to construct satisfactory responses. All hands need to be put to this task. That means international cooperation well beyond what we're seeing today, be it in the development of vaccines, be it in the provision of support to the developing world. We need it more than ever. And the unfortunate truth is right now, today, there is not enough of that solidarity, not enough of that cooperation in evidence. Uh, And I hope that we can help to change the climate in that regard. Thanks very much uh, for listening uh, to me. I hope I haven't taken too much time. Thanks again.
1: Thank you very much, Director General. And I think we'll move now to your DC office. And we're very, very grateful to be um, able to support and have this session today. And you brought out a lot of the deeper issues we were very, very interested in. Thank you. Kevin Cassidy, please take the mic.
3: Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, thank you to the Director General for joining us today uh, with a very busy schedule. Um, the okay. next part of this program will be a Q&A session uh, with what we call the social partners of the ILO. This is the workers and employers. Um, I'll introduce them first and then I would ask uh, Kathy Feingold to make the presentation and then for our other colleague, uh, Gabriella rig Herzog. Uh, Kathy Thank Feingold you. is the director of the AFL-CIO's international department. Uh, and the deputy president of the International Trade Union Confederation, uh, which is an organization representing 200 million unionized workers worldwide. Uh, Kathy brings more than 20 years of experience in trade, global economic policy, and worker, human, and women's rights issues. In 2020, uh, Speaker Pelosi appointed Feingold to the Independent Mexico Labor Export Board, uh, Board. Uh, the body created under the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement to monitor and evaluate labor reforms and worker rights compliance in Mexico. Her work in both global and grassroots fora reflect her commitment to strengthening the voice of workers and people uh, in the global policy debates. Uh, Welcome, Kathy, to you, and I will uh, give you the floor at this time.
0: Thank you so much, Kevin, and thank you, Director General Ryder, for those important words. Today, it's really fitting to celebrate both World Food Day as well as the World Food Program's Nobel Peace Prize, because it really recognizes the contributions that the World Food Program makes for working people around the world, and we're really grateful for that. As we celebrate the World Food Program and World Food Day, we come together uh, to really also celebrate Global Minnesota's work. So thank you, Mark, um, to you and to your wonderful staff for the vision you had in putting together this program and for the work you do every single day for working people. We are living in a time of intertwined crises. We've got economic inequality. We've heard about the health pandemic. Racial injustice, attacks on democracy. And I know uh, everyone in, in Minnesota has been part of these intertwined crises, as well as all of us here in the US and around the world. It's a time of extreme challenges. It's also a time of extreme opportunities. We have opportunities to rebuild our economy in a way that puts, puts food security, the sustainable development goals, worker well being, and the environment at the core of any recovery. We need to see the sustainable development goals that were created by the United Nations, not as individual targets, but as a set of interlinked and complementary policies that create kind of a roadmap for us to tell us where should we be going today. As we commemorate World Food Day, I think of all the ways workers are part of this day, from planting to producing the food, selling the food at grocery stores and restaurants, And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, workers across all sectors are experiencing growing food insecurity. A forthcoming worker rights consortium survey based on hundreds of interviews across garment uh, producing countries finds a crisis among garment workers whose wages were terminated when consumer demand plummeted during the crisis and now they face extreme food insecurity. So For the labor movement, our message for World Food Day is that there can be no food security without worker rights and protections for all food and agricultural workers. Far too often essential workers have been considered expendable in the global economy. We have got to change that model. That pandemic and today's focus on World Food Day reminds us that we should consider that we have the opportunity to change the model that has kept so many workers in this situation of abusive worker rights as well as food insecurity. We can make a change. In the US, we've continued to raise concerns regarding the current crisis on food workers. Meatpacking workers have been placed in the category of essential for their role in maintaining functional food supply chains, but many of them are at risk of food insecurity themselves. Here in the US, without a national emergency health standard creating one framework for health and safety practices across all workplaces, almost 45,000 meatpacking workers have been affected with COVID, and over 250 have lost their lives. And instead of increasing protections, some employers and politicians have actually blamed the workers for the outbreaks. We've seen an increase in racist attacks targeting migrant meatpacking workers, including arguments that migrants they're not like us, they live in crowded and unsanitary conditions. We must reject that kind of rhetoric and make sure that all workers, migrant workers, uh, the most precarious workers receive the same rights and protections as all workers. And the situation for farm workers producing our food has been no better. With the shutdown of restaurants, schools, universities, corporate cafeterias, American farms have scrambled to find alternative ways of getting produce to markets. Prices have fallen by 20 to 30% and workers have been hit correspondingly. And the mass layers of farm workers resulted in another layer of crisis for those on temporary visas known as H2A visas here in the United States. We know that this is a situation that has faced migrant workers around the world in different visa categories. At least 150,000 agricultural workers in the U.S. have been affected by COVID. And since the data that we have excludes temporary and contract workers, we know the number is higher. And finally, those cafeteria workers that kept us all fed in our workplaces, they feed us in stadiums and universities and corporate cafeterias. They have been furloughed and faced their own precarious situation. Their jobs remained uh, really precarious, part-time, few or no benefits and often little to no training and how to do the job safely. So now we know there's a lot of challenges, but I also mentioned at the beginning, this is a moment of opportunity. We absolutely know that we cannot go back to this model where farm workers' rights have been excluded from U.S. labor law, have been excluded from many laws around the world, where migrant workers are not receiving the same protections. We can change all that right now as we think about what kind of recovery packages and what kind of economic models we need to rebuild to make sure that uh, our model is rooted in protecting the rights and well being of workers and of the environment. So, first of all, we need a trade union and human rights based approach for agricultural and food workers to be the basis of any global food security policies. This means that all workers must be recognized as essential and critical workers for global food security and for resilient food supply chains. All worker rights should be respected. When workers feel like they have a voice at work, they can make sure they're working in a safe workplace. When workers feel like they're protected to say, hey, sanitation in my workplace knowing there will be no firing because they're speaking out, that will make sure we have safe workplaces. Agricultural and food workers, including migrant workers, must have the same labor and human rights as workers in all industries and commerce. And we must recommit to implementing the, social, uh, the sustainable development goals that provide that important framework for building food security and economic and social justice for all workers. I am confident today on World Food Day that we can build this new model together. The labor movement is ready to do it, and we look forward to working with all of you. Thanks so much for having me here today.
3: Thank you very much, Kathy, that's uh, that's wonderful, and uh, we'll get a little bit more deeper into those issues in just a moment. Um, At this time, I'd like to invite uh, my colleague, Gabriella Rig Herzog, uh, from the U.S. Council for International Business, uh, Gabriella is the Vice President of Labor Affairs and Corporate Responsibility for USCIB, and Ms. Herzog leads USCIB's work on labor and employment policy, corporate responsibility, business and human rights, and corporate governance. Uh, USCIB itself advances the global interests of American businesses, both as a member of the ILO and through its membership in the International Organization of Employers. Um, Gabriella, prior to joining USCIB, uh, worked uh, as the corporate social responsibility uh, officer at the Hess Corporation, where she had developed an, an in, and uh, integrated the key CSR and human rights governance, employment training uh, and assurance processes into their management systems. Uh, Gabriella also has worked in the U.S. Department of State and the Department of Labor. Uh, Gabriella, the floor is yours.
4: Thank you so much, Kevin. And thank you so much to today's organizers, Global Minnesota. Uh, It's a prestigious event that you've developed um, your agenda over the course of today to celebrate World Food Day. Um, You've got a wide-ranging panel and and, um, group over the day of leading experts um, from a range of disciplines, and I'm very proud to have uh, USCIB be included today. I also agree with the remarks that Director General uh, Guy Ryder gave about um, what a great opportunity this is to participate in a conversation that's connecting the global with the local as um, Global Minnesota does on a regular basis. Thank you. Um, Just quickly about the U.S. Council for International Business. Um, We're a, a business membership association with an active membership base of a some 300 multinational corporations, law firms and business associations. Like Global Minnesota, the um, core connecting point among our members is that they're globally focused, operating internationally or sourcing internationally across a range of um, sectors, including agribusiness, um, agribusiness members as well. We're a policy-focused organization and we follow uh, global policy developments through our standing in key international uh, bodies, including um, the International Labor Organization. So within the ILO, we represent US employers and have a seat on the ILO governing body um, as well. USCIB covers a range of policy areas. I cover labor and employment, but I do have a colleague, Mike Michener, who covers food and agriculture um, and and he follows a lot of the issues that we're discussing today very closely. I wanna join everyone in celebrating World Food Day today um, and the founding of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Its mission uh, which in its founding is the same um, and, and with uh, even more importance today. And this year's theme, the 2020 theme for World Food Day of Grow, Nourish, Sustain Together um, is incredibly relevant. Of course, today um, and you know since um, the beginning of the year, we've all been um, operating in a very unique context with COVID-19 and the global pandemic, and that colors um, a lot of the discussion about food security and. Um, and development and agriculture um, that we're discussing today. The pandemic has had devastating impacts, first and foremost, obviously from a health perspective, but also economic and livelihoods with um, countries, economies, um, businesses, and families, and individuals all impacted equally. Um, And as a result of um, especially the livelihoods impacts, we have nutrition concerns as well. And um, very worrying um, uh, statistics, not only from the World Bank or the OECD, but even um, at state levels in Minnesota, you're well aware of increased nutrition um, scarcity and, and vulnerability of many around the world. Um, So in terms of a a response, um, certainly there's short-term opportunities, um, infusion of short-term economic support for families to be able to um, have access to resources to um, get the food they need to, uh, to sustain their families. Um, shoring up social protection systems as well is an, a policy area that we've certainly advocated for, um, especially at the global level, um, but also domestically as well. I mean, the need for individuals during this um, transition, during this um, scenario to be able to have access to unemployment insurance or health benefits or just infusions of short-term liquidity for small businesses to be able to maintain themselves, to be able to continue to produce the food and employ the very key frontline workers um, to be able to um, um, facilitate that connection between um, the food providers and the recipients. Longer term approaches, though, are critical, and that's going to cover a broader range of policy issues, including core areas like um, education policy, um, skills development policy, um, uh, as well as tackling some of the deeper rooted issues Guy Ryder talked about informality. The majority of the world's workers are in the informal sector, where some of the biggest challenges regarding decent work are prevalent. Um, As we together look at policy responses, to the food crisis um, and the need, uh, the perennial need for greater access to food and nutrition, um, the key for us is inclusive approaches, um, be it at the local level or at the multilateral level, but inclusive approaches that bring governments businesses, civil society, university sector, academia together, bringing that knowledge together um, for shared solutions. And I thought uh, the launch earlier today of the EMBOLD, the Minnesota EMBOLD coalition, which brought together businesses, universities, and civil society to um, address, uh, as my understanding is, future of food and agriculture in ways that nourish the growing population, but also protect and preserve Earth's natural resources is an example of an inclusive approach responding to a key critical need um, that is one that we should look to um, with um, support and um, hopes for replication going forward. Maybe I'll just touch on an example of um, this type of inclusive approach and the partnership model that's so key um, for um, for for, uh, successful responses by mentioning an initiative at the US Council for International Business that we recently launched, Business Partners for Sustainable Development. It's an initiative of our foundation and it's a virtual center that establishes a framework for government, business, and civil society to share information, resources, activities, and capabilities. The objective is to facilitate partnerships on key issue areas like global nutrition and malnutrition and find creative solutions um, that can be optimized. And in a recent example, and I'll conclude with this, uh, Kevin, and look forward to the discussion, um, our foundation teamed up with the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, GAIN, to organize two um, public-private uh, pa- partnership dialogues on the issue of how to address um, and tackle malnutrition, and this work, these dialogues led to the development to the development of a set of seven principles for engagement between governments and businesses to improve nutritional outcomes through public-private partnerships and this work is being advanced to donors and key development uh, development agencies, foundations, and companies interested in advancing this work and will also be um, uh, furthered at um, national levels, um, uh, but with a, a slightly delayed timeline because of, um, of course, uh, COVID um, overlays and the need um, to wait until we can do those um, Uh, dialogues in person on the ground Um, so that's just an example of the importance of um, and value of inclusive approaches partnerships and dialogue um, at the multilateral system level and locally as well and um, thank you so much
3: Gabriella thank you very much for that so now we'll go into the Q&A component uh, segment of this uh, discussion and um, I think the 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 question I think on everybody's mind right now is on uh, COVID nineteen uh, about how uh, you know these uh, essential workers uh, becoming essential workers are poorly paid and working in difficult conditions and so uh, maybe not having the right protections and so so first to Kathy um, you know what are you seeing out there and and, and what is AFL CIO and the other affiliates doing to assist people in this uh, difficult time?
0: Thanks, Kevin. Uh, we see that there's a tremendous crisis and. Um, uh, you know, one of the first things that we said during this crisis is our country needs an emergency uh, temporary health standard. We asked the Department of Labor to do that. Uh, we actually had to have a lawsuit filed because it, uh, we weren't getting the needed uh, government regulation on this. Um, without that framework, what's happening is they're having to do it state by state. So we saw today the governor of Michigan um, coming out with a new um, order around protecting the health and safety of workers. We've seen Virginia enact an important Piece of legislation, but what we really should be seeing is one framework so that employers know, you know, what do we need to do to have good, healthy workplaces. Um, So that's one important thing during this crisis. The other crisis is absolutely giving um, workers the protection they need. Um, We've been trying to uh, support uh, a renewal and expansion of what was the CARES Act, which is now being called the HEROES Act. Um, In our country, uh, workers have been on a cliff for a while. They have have no more um, income support. We're seeing in Europe different models where income support programs are continuing. We need ongoing support for all workers, migrants, uh, agricultural food workers, any worker who has been impacted by COVID should um, get income protection. And then lastly, obviously all workers should have access to free testing and to healthcare protection. So that is the immediate. um, And although it sounds pretty basic in our country, we are still struggling to get these fundamental issues um, uh,
3: created. Yeah, if, if I can maybe take that a little bit further with uh, Gabriella, um, you know, behind closed doors, if I may push you a little bit about uh, the business community, you know, what are their major concerns? Obviously, price point is very important in the U.S. market. Um, if you are getting better protections uh, or improving the, uh, uh, the health care that these workers are having, um, what are businesses concerns and, and how is USCIB advising them?
4: Well, first and foremost, it's a health crisis. I mean, we've, we're, we're all in this together. I mean, it, it COVID-19 does not discriminate. Uh, it doesn't care where you're located around the world or your economic status, um, irrespective. And so from that perspective, first and foremost, is a health crisis. I mean, we need to focus on getting the vaccine. I've certainly um, aligned myself with those who feel like if um we want to be able to get the economy the global economy going again um is so that families can get back to work and have the. i mean we're talking about food and nutrition today right so families can get back to work to have the resources to supply the nutrition needed for their families we need to be healthy um we need to be able to um uh count on a vaccine, but there's a lot of um, concern and um, some funny information um, out in the world about whether or not the vaccine will be safe. Um, they're, they're already prior, you know, um, there's um, kind of a global discussion, unfortunately, about vaccines. So as an example of one of the initiatives that we're undertaking at USCIB through this business partnerships for sustainable development, I- development I mentioned, is in collaboration with Wilton Park and with our global affiliations like the International Organization of Employers and the International Chamber of Commerce, we've launched um, something called um, CONVINCE, which is a um, public-private partnership to um, advance information, credible information about vaccines and their safety with an end and we'll, Seek to mobilize and leverage our global networks of the business community to be able to um, communicate with transparency and with authoritative and solid information about um, vaccines, when they come out, and what can be expected and um, their reliability so that um, together um, we can try and. get as many people vaccinated as possible once that cure comes forward. And health, again, is at the core of our recovery. So that's just an example of a concern that we're trying to address uh, through a public-private partnership.
3: Kathy, you were talking a bit earlier about migrant workers. We, we know that migrant workers are, in many ways, the backbone of the agricultural sector in terms of picking or planting and weeding and so. Um, know what challenges do we face currently what would like what would uh, the AFL and again your affiliates uh, advise uh, and uh, and to sort of de-escalate people's maybe misperceptions maybe give me a clearer picture about what that actually means.
0: Thank you Kevin I guess I would start by saying um, although you know everybody is experiencing the pandemic it does discriminate and what we're finding is um certain communities are disproportionately impacted and migrant and communities of color in the United States have seen a you know huge uh impact um compared to other communities so i do think this is an issue about inequality, about frontline workers, about communities of color that have been disproportionately impacted. For migrant uh, workers, I think one is the issue I talked about, um, you know, the threat of the, the visa categories. Um, uh, in the US, labor law protections, they don't receive the same labor law protections. So we need labor law reform. But at the actual workplace, because I think that's where we really need to be looking. I mean, before even vaccines happen, what's happening today to the person and that is um, picking our berries or our our lettuce, Um, we need to make sure they have clean water They have proper access to um, uh, sanitation. Um, They physically distance. They have places where they can sleep in their quarantine. Um, The Farm Labor Organizing Committee, one of the affiliates of the AFL-CIO, has actually developed a model so that when workers coming from Mexico come for the agricultural work here in the United States, temporary work, um, they're living in places that the union has uh, ensured is safe, right, so that they're not all in a, a close quarter but there's quarantine, there is plexiglass um, in the needed places, there's soap, there's sanitation. So um, the role of unions, making sure that those workers can have a collective voice, they can speak out without fear of saying you know you're gonna be deported or lose your job is so critical during this pandemic.
3: Very good. You know, when we start thinking about um, supply chains, whether they're domestic or global, obviously, um, looking at those inputs that come in and, and Gabriella, you know, we, we actually the other day, we had a discussion about, uh, for example, the uh, Harkin Engel protocol about chocolate. And so, uh, you know, what is the business community thinking about this? Do they feel besieged by these human rights specialists? Or do they really empathize and understand that it's a part of the business model, and, and we need to work together on this?
4: Well, if I think if I'm understanding the question correctly, and with today's theme in mind about food and agriculture, um, you're talking about the connections between global corporations and production overseas through supply chains. And in that regard, I'd say, not just for food and ag, but across the board, um, especially with the advent in 2011 of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which offered a global framework on um, the role of government and the role of business on human rights. There's a clear understanding about the responsibilities of business to carry out their work with, uh, with due diligence and with respect for human rights, and that includes with business relationships. So there's decades of practice which is always evolving and advancing and improving of working to um, use the leverage that those business relationships have to be able to seek to advance um, uh, these rights, especially in places around the world where rule of law is not where we would want to see it. The ILO's own data shows that the overwhelming majority of Decent work deficits, if I could use the ILO language, but, you know, the challenges that we don't want to see, the child labor, the forced labor, um, uh, Health and safety, wage and hour concerns, the ILO's data shows that the overwhelming majority of those cases are at the domestic level. So Guy Ryder, Director Ryder mentioned uh, domestic supply chains, and I believe that came up in the um, in the context you're mentioning regarding cocoa as well, but the, the Kathy has noted challenges and opportunities. I mean, this is a a shared concern for all of us who care about the advancement of human rights and labor rights around the world. We've got to figure out how to better engage these national level producers who aren't tied to global supply chain, but they represent the majority of production and the majority of work in the world, but they're producing for national consumers or um, uh, neighboring consumers where, Unfortunately, um, the expectations are not what we would want them to be with regards to labor and human rights. So that's a big nut for us to work to crack. A lot of the overlay there has to do with informality, as I mentioned earlier. But the informal sector is outside the umbrella of labor formal labor law protection. And they're in the shadows. And that's where the higher risks can come. And we've also got to find together a way to bring those small independent workers, the, the independent businesses, into the formal sector, and we've got to push governments to find ways to incentivize that to happen so that they can also come out of the shadows and have the benefit of labor law inspection and oversight as well. It's a complex issue, but there's a, a longstanding and, and, and evergreen commitment on the part of business to be part of the solution.
3: And speaking about, uh, and shifting gears very slightly about some of these big mega drivers of change, and uh, recently the ILO's Future of Work report had looked at issues such as digital technologies, uh, but also climate change. Um, I think many of the audiences uh, that are here today will understand that, you know, climate change does have a direct impact on their work. Uh, looking at uh, whether it's too much rain and you can't plant the fields or not enough rain or the, uh, the, the I- impact of fertilizers. Uh, may, again, Kathy, on your side, uh, what are the big challenges that uh, climate change uh, um, sort of uh, imposes on those uh, agricultural workers? And, and what is the AFL-CIO doing with business in order to improve that situation?
0: Yeah, and I should have added that that is one of the major crises, right, that I should have added to the list as we see uh, what was happening to agricultural workers here in the United States and California. You have the pandemic and you had the fires and they were out there, you know, inhaling um, smoke from uh, what we're seeing as an impact of climate change, these, these raging fires on the West Coast. The AFL-CIO has worked with the International Labor Organization, with USCIB, and others on creating a just transition framework. Um, We need to ensure that any worker that is affected by um, uh, climate change has a framework for transitioning, for having health and safety protections, for making sure if they need to adapt uh, in their workplace, that there, you know, there's government, um, uh, there's a government plan for doing that, that you don't just sort of say, you know, this job is no longer needed in this economy, but have a plan for those workers that need to transition. Um, I think agricultural uh, workers in particular are bearing a brunt of, of climate change with um, with the weather conditions. And I would say that uh, a challenge in, uh, is you know, how are employers adapting to the need to increase protections, right? We saw this as a real struggle with the um, smoke inhalation of workers. That was the case that was really in front of us in the most recent weeks. And so I think, you know, having just transition frameworks for the needed transition due to climate change, you need the solutions to be tripartite. Workers need to be at the table shaping the policies needed for the future, needed for that transition. We absolutely accept we must be part of the solution to addressing climate change. Unions are in it, and we look forward to working with our our business partners.
3: Right, Gabriella, if I could ask you the same question, please.
4: Sure, in terms of the future of work and this shared planet, right they, there's no other there's no planet B as they as they say I mean we're we're in this together. um, The UN Sustainable Development Goals provide a very important framework. I know you'll be talking about that more in later sessions today, but they are the global consensus on the full range of policy issues, including climate and environment and oceans, poverty and hunger and women and children, Um, the full range of of, uh, core areas where we need to uh, be finding shared solutions to advance. USCIB has a website uh, we host called Business for 2030, where we list a number of examples of uh, business efforts to um, and and concrete programs and investments they're making in support of the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda. Um, the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda and, and, and climate as you're talking about, and we're talking about agriculture, and we're talking about worker, these are intersecting policy areas. You kicked off with future of work future of work um, is uh, an, an opportunity space for all of us. And COVID-19 is only shining a bright light, brighter light on the importance of, of education policy, Um, First and foremost, I mean, it begins um, at the early years and education policy that's developed in consultation with workers, with employers to understand um, needs, uh, skills needs, skills gaps and needs for jobs for the future, Um, inclusive employment policies uh, to address um, the need for um, more balance of bringing women and youth into the workplace, um, uh, apprenticeship policies um, and opportunities for innovative approaches in that area, older workers, disabled, um, and, um, you know, talking about intersections, just, you know, kind of, when, as I was orienting myself a little bit um, uh, for today's, today's panel. I mentioned I'm the labor employment person at my my organization. I'm not the food and ag person. But there's so many innovations that are out there. And I read and watched a number of videos about regenerative agriculture, um, which ties into this need for um, innovative approaches that are climate and planet friendly, Um, that deliver improvement in terms of productivity and yield to be able to have more uh, products for the people, for the nutrition, as well as uh, business and societal value. So I would say um, business is concerned, uh, business is demonstrating um, efforts towards um, the solutions on climate, and these are intersecting issues um, that, that, that need attention.
3: So I'd I'd like to go a little further on the SDGs, if you don't mind. I mean, for those who may not know, the Sustainable Development Goals actually are all pretty much intersected. And we're very fortunate to have uh, decent work uh, as central to that. Um, I I see Mark on, so we may be finishing up here. But just very quickly, what is the trade-off between introducing newer technologies and displacing workers? You know, uh, 60 percent or so of workers in sub-Saharan Africa are in agriculture. We may have food security but we'll have unemployment so maybe just in the last uh, two minutes if we can just get uh, the, the positions on either side before we have to close over
0: uh i would just jump in and just say uh using that just transition framework you know technology has been introduced to workplaces and into agriculture For centuries. This is not new. Um, And so we pretend now that suddenly we're in this technological moment. Well, we've always been in in a moment of technological change. Right now it's faster than we've ever experienced it. You want to make sure those agricultural workers are at the table, shaping how the new technology is introduced into their workplace so that they can be part of the solution. If there there needs to be a change in the jobs, let let that be uh, resolved through conversations. Um, And I think that's how you do it. You create a just transition framework so that it's not technology versus workers, it's workers shaping the policies for the best technology and outcomes in their communities.
3: And the last word to you, Gabriella, please.
4: Well, I'm pleased, uh, uh, Kevin, to be able to give the last word and as one of agreement and consensus. Um, there is a need for inclusive approaches um, on um, uh, to be able to make sure that Workers, as we are transitioning to new systems or innovations um, in agriculture and beyond, um, that we're also investing in retraining and um, upskilling to be able to, to, to be able to support them in securing their ability to transition as well and, and advance on behalf of their, um, their families and their communities. So include business, include workers, include governments uh, together at the table, and um, that's what the ILO offers, and and I think inclusive approaches are are, um, really what's required.
3: Great. Gabriella, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Mark, thank you for the invitation. Kevin,
1: Gabriella, Kathy, thank you for both bringing the ILO alive to us, but also giving us that hopeful, that consensus that we've got to move ahead and make things better kind of message. COVID requires demands. There's no other way. Now we can take that direction, that inspiration that you gave us. And thank you again for Director General Ryder. We are so fortunate to be able to have this global perspective which then has such a local and personal, because everybody on the planet is working somehow. Everybody on the planet is affected by climate, everyone on the planet affected by COVID. So your uh, sharing today uh, at the both macro and the most micro level is a very, very important contribution to our World Food Day. Uh, We look forward to hearing more and following and partnering as we can. Thank you very much. And to our guests, uh, we will be back to you in just a couple minutes. Thank you again, International Labor Organization.